Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Romaniacs, the Pompidou Centre of Podcasts, where we put the whole convoluted mess of Brexit on the outside so you can get a good view of it. I'm Peter Collins. In a former life, I was a business journalist, and now I'm a keen and anxious observer of Britain's increasingly desperate attempts at Brexcopology. We have a slightly different team for this edition of the podcast. Co-presenting the show this week, I'm delighted to welcome Naomi Smith back to Romaniacs. She's a former Liberal Democrat candidate in London. She's been the chair of the Social Liberal Forum. I bet they have good parties. And she's a self-confessed Euromaniac who still sees those pictures of herself on referendum day looking all sad and heartbroken, reproduced all over the papers. So how does it feel, Naomi, to be the face of the sad face of Romaniacs. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Who wants to be the face of disaster? It's like I'm some kind of walking tears emoji. Awful. <laughs> but there's something to be happy for you, uh, isn't there? There's Vince Cable. He's now elected unopposed as leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. You're a bit of a fan of his, aren't you? Well, to uh, rehash a hackneyed phrase from the election, uh, I'm going to go for strong and cable. Uh, he's not always been rock solid on free movement, uh, but he does seem to be on message now with um, Europe. And I'm sure that all Romaniacs listeners will welcome uh, his exit from Brexit strategy. We'd like to welcome our special guest this week, Afua Hirsch. She's a writer, broadcaster and former barrister focusing on human rights. Born in Norway, grew up in London and is of English Ghanaian heritage. You really do not get much more international than that. She's a regular face on The Pledge on Sky News on Thursday nights and her new book, Brit-ish, Why We Need to Talk About Race, is published by Penguin in January. Hello, Afua. Thanks for coming in. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. I was being photographed looking really crestfallen on referendum day. And um, uh, yeah, as, as Peter mentioned, this, this photo seems to go everywhere and, and crop up all the time. Where were you at that uh, exciting moment? What were you doing? I, I really hate to admit this, and no one's asked me before, but I was asleep. I basically <laughs> decided to give it up at one point and just woke, woke up to complete doom and disaster uh but the thing is i i i was kind of like buoyed the next day by this deeply held belief that everyone would just realize this was insane and change their minds so the real the real sense of doom has come for me in the subsequent months realizing that actually we might all just decide to just be defeatist about it um in the run-up to the vote were you ever entirely sure that remain was going to win or did you have those early apprehensions i think i knew that there was a strong pro-Brexit sentiment um, and I did a lot of reporting on it uh, one thing that surprised me actually was going around speaking to people who descended from immigrants themselves who were planning on voting Brexit and just realizing how complicated the motives for Brexit really were but I think I fell back on this in hindsight flawed um, naive view that 
we're quite a pragmatic people, the Brits, you know, and I thought in the end, we're a little bit risk averse and, and we often just do the sensible thing. So I thought that reason would kind of prevail over emotion. And for that reason, because I think the problem is none of us, are, well, I can't speak for everyone, but I wasn't necessarily a passionate advocate of Brussels, you know, and I don't know many people who were. And so I think that the, you know, it was hard for the Remain side to compete with the emotion and the, the emotional narrative of the lead side. And like so often is the case, I think, you know, the right tend to have the good narrative and the left have facts. And Remain was a kind of parallel situation where Brexit had the story and the strong narrative and sovereignty and getting your country back. And we had lots of facts about the single market and trade and, uh, you know, um, the social and economic implications of leaving, which just in hindsight didn't didn't cut it. You write a lot about British identity. Um, did the Remain campaign miss how important those sort of unfashionable ideas of Britishness were? Yeah, and even though I didn't foresee that we would go with Brexit, I've been for the last three years working on this book, which is coming out in January. Yeah, yeah we're going to talk said. about it a bit yeah. more later. Yeah, um, but but my book is about identity, and my thesis was and still is that um, identity is kind of I think the issue of our times, and I think that a lot of people have underestimated the extent to which Britishness is an identity. I think in crisis, and I was looking at that from a kind of heritage perspective, from the perspective of a black person who's British. I know so many people of minority backgrounds who don't feel able to embrace Britishness, even though they are British and for me that kind of offers a lens on a deeper crisis in Britishness and I think that from a slightly different angle that's what Brexit is all about it's about this identity crisis and the attempt to kind of get a sense of identity back. Thanks very much we'll be back to talk to Afro later and uh, we have one more person on the panel maybe the Nick Ferrari of Romaniacs who knows <laughs> stepping out of the shadows and bringing up the rear who misses is our program editor Andrew Harrison Andrew's a former editor of the music magazines Select Q and Mix Mag and he has a terrible dark secret which is that he's related to me he <laughs> describes himself far too modestly as an extremely amateur politics wonk he also presents our sister podcast Big Mouth which covers music films television and all aspects of popular culture and we'll be plugging it in more detail later but fresh from reviewing the battle of the bastards in game of the thrones here he is to discuss the battle of the bastards in westminster and brussels <laughs> andrew uh, welcome in front of the romaniacs mic hello i much prefer westeros to westminster at the moment it, it makes more sense and it's less brutal and fratricidal i think uh, no, you're gone. yes yes so uh, one of the magazines that you edited select uh, started the Britpop revolution, so you know Blur and Pulp and Oasis, and put the Union Jack on the cover when yes. that was a very unfashionable and a slightly sort of dodgy thing to do. So Brexit's your fault. It basically. is. It <laughs> is my fault. It's all my fault. I have been accused of this in all seriousness on on social media. Well, we wouldn't have the Brexit if people hadn't started throwing the Union Jack all over the place. Andrew, it's your fault, Andrew. And I say it's not my fault. It's uh, it's Noel Gallagher's fault. But you know, I thought that the Britpop moment was a really interesting one because it was a time when uh, if you you know music lovers could re-embrace all the great things that British music was. And to me, it wasn't just about, uh, you know, white bands with guitars. It was dance music. It was it was Scar and Reggae that had given us two And the great stuff about British music was that it was multicultural. And Britpop was a way of celebrating that. So uh, I'm going to say, no, it's not, Britpop is not Brexit. Britpop is anti-Brexit. Britpop is, is pro-EU. My favourite uh, use of the Union Jack um, uh, anecdote, which you might have heard before, is the Union Jack donuts that you buy at Morrison's. You buy a packet of five donuts at Morrison's and the packaging is entirely Union Jack. Yes. And it's because it's almost saying, this is good old British stuff. And there's, there's, there's something slightly 
makes me a bit queasy about it, uh, you know. Are we going to discover that, that donuts were invented in Brussels or something? Yeah. Well, indeed, so. yes, yes. Yes, yeah. the uh, le, le nut de dough. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, the, we have started, I don't know if anybody else has noticed it, but, but you know, the more and more Union Jacks appearing on on food in supermarkets. This is a British sausage. This is a British, this is, this is British bacon or whatever. And clearly, you know, there's a strong argument for that, which is food miles and so forth. And yes, you should buy locally sourced stuff. But I wonder whether, uh, you know, manufacturers and marketers are thinking that, you know, Britishness is the way forward. Yes, yeah, it's a, a double-edged sword. Before we begin, we have two little announcements to make. Firstly, next week, we're going to try the first of what might turn out to be a regular feature. Ask Romaniacs. Our panel will be answering your questions about Brexit and any related matters. All you need to do is tweet your question to at RomaniacsCast with the hashtag AskRomaniacs. We'll answer the most interesting ones next week's show, which goes out on Friday the 4th of August. And if you've been enjoying the show and you're an Apple user, please can we ask a little favour? Why not subscribe to Romaniacs via Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a nice positive review on iTunes too? Reviews and subscriptions are the best way to appease the all-powerful Apple Podcast algorithm and get us in front of new listeners. You can either search for us in the Apple Podcast app on your iPhone or find us in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Subscribe and you will never miss an opportunity to help us undermine the will of the British people again. <laughs> and of course, for Android people, we're on Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Overcast and Spotify too. You can find all of these links at romaniacs.com. OK, let's get started, as usual, uh, with Peter's news roundup from the Brexit trenches. Peter, tell us you haven't lost the news. I haven't lost the news. I've just um, mislaid it temporarily. <laughs> oh, hang on. Here we are. Right. So the first item is the cabinet's now apparently in total agreement on something, which is pretty big, namely that we do need a transition period after we officially leave the EU in March 2019. That was revealed by Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary, uh, on Friday. According to some reports, this transition could be two years, could be four years or something in between. And one argument is that in return for accepting free movement during that time, Britain remains in the single market and possibly the customs union during that time while we sort out what the hell we're going to do. So uh, question for the panel. Is this a further sign that the government's edging slowly towards rejoining the reality based community? What do we think? Well, I think, I mean, if we just sort of take a moment to think about the absurdity, the reluctant absurdity of transitional agreements from their perspective. I think it's like an embarrassingly expensive lesson that we're all paying for, for the Brexiteers to have. And I think you can see them in real time, slow-mo, figuring out why the ECJ exists as they ponder how to reach some kind of accommodation with, I don't know, like US versus UK food standards. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about chlorinated chickens later. You know, what is... Liam Fox after with all of this is it that you know a chicken could be half chlorinated by 2022 <laughs> with the other half being phased in over time you know frankly uh, I think it's absurd um, listening listening to them have this kind of argument I found it so interesting li listening to people who've actually conducted trade negotiations and um, treaties before because the idea that we could conduct, I think it's 60 trade agreements that the EU, that are kind of bound up in the EU, one a week, uh, one a week and, and pull that off within a year, you know, with my lawyer's hat on, it's, it's beyond absurd. And I do, you know, as a lawyer, one of the challenges of being a lawyer in this country now is kind of keeping up with the pace of regulation and the extent to which everything is all enmeshed. It's so complicated. And I do wonder whether any of the people who set the initial timetable had any understanding 
of just the practicalities of how long it takes. But the, the, the flip side is, you know, and I think it's easy for people like me to uh, highlight all of the impracticalities and the details. But imagine a scenario where we all agreed that we should leave the EU, which I, I know takes some leap of imagination. The, pra- the fact that the practicalities are difficult wouldn't be a compelling reason not to do it. So, you know, I think the problem with pointing out all of these, um, you know, these details is that it, it doesn't really help the kind of underlying sense that, you know, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. But it is nice to see the reality-based community getting a bit of a, a boost in the news this week. I, th- I think it's it's interesting to just say from the point of view of a, of a culture clash in that the, the thing that seems to be driving the Brexiteers is a fundamental belief in the, the value uh, and insuperability of plucky British amateurism. You know, so David Davis wasn't photographed with no briefing on his table at the negotiations by accident. That was presentational. We can do this because we're British and jolly old British common sense will trump everything else. We don't want to be like those technocratic people from Brussels with their briefings and their, uh, you know, their endless reports. And their, look at the big stack of papers he's got. So I, I kind of think that that's the, the rock on which they're breaking. It's not that uh, it's not so much that there wasn't time put into preparing this and thought put into pre- preparing it, which obviously there wasn't. It's that there's a belief that you don't need to do that. We saw Liam Fox saying that you know the uh, one of the uh, aspects of it was going to be the easiest thing anybody had ever done, and uh, you know I, I think if you were to describe disentangling a country from a massively enmeshed and complicated regulatory and legal uh, you know framework, you would describe it as the most complicated thing anybody could possibly do. But it's not being thought about at a rational level; it's being thought about at an emotional and level. And the problem is that that's designed obviously to appeal to conservative voters and Brexit voters. It's not being designed to appeal to the people that you actually need to yeah. do the business with. And that's I think this has been a really interesting week between seeing the the uh, competing interests of the Conservative Party and the country at large, yeah. and it's quite it's increasingly apparent that the two are diametrically opposed a lot of the time i think you said a very interesting thing there that, that even if the whole the entire country agreed that uh, leaving the, uh, the eu was a good idea the fact that it was incredibly difficult wouldn't be a reason not to do it and i wonder if that's true because sometimes the solution is worse than the problem you're right you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs but if making the omelet requires uh, burning down the hen house and killing all the chickens as well you might decide you don't want to make the omelet you might decide you want to stick with what you've already got. And I think that's what we've got here. The opportunity cost of getting us out of this thing for this emotional requirement, this emotional belief that we ought to grab onto those very fuzzy, hard to define things like sovereignty is running up against the actual physical cost of doing it. And we're utterly, completely unprepared for it. Well, just a question about this transition uh, period. Pro-Brexit people are often have often been against this. They've had this idea that, oh, well, it's just a trick, that basically we will be sort of just outside the EU, formally outside it, but in practice still in the single market and so on, and it'll be like the Hotel California, you check out but you never leave. So the question I have is, because it's seen as bad by Brexiteers, should we as Romaniacs think it's a good thing? If they think it's a bad idea, we should like it. Indeed, yeah. Well, it's a good starting point, isn't it? I would have thought. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think to an extent... Britain has always had a fudged relationship with Europe. You know, when you look back over the last hundred or so years, it's it, it's had exemptions that other countries haven't had to have. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that, that this could become the new normal, that we extend a period for a while, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. There's a change of a few governments in Europe, a change of a few governments here. And, and lo and behold, the new status quo is just this sort of endless fudge transition phase. 
I, th- I think we never should say, ends. I think we should say Britain is transitioning and we need an understanding at this time yeah. we need to support <laughs> us and just leave it like that. I, I think, I mean, your point's a really good one. I think that the process is difficult. The fact that the process is difficult won't sway people, but if, if the fact that the outcome might be deeply undesirable yes. is what is what will and i think i still think that there could be one smoking gun issue that just puts everyone off brexit and you know chlorinated chicken probably isn't it but that you know <laughs> something that taps into the sense of britishness and at mm. the moment britishness has been portrayed as kind of leaving the eu but if something that we hold dear as part of our national identity seems jeopardized by leaving the eu i think that could all turn around there are so many different things that could be that thing well the listeners should should send them on twitter if we, if we can concoct <laughs> send a, in your ideas <laughs> yeah if, if we can concoct an idea that brussels will be taking coronation street with it when we leave then i think that's brexit dead in the water isn't it indeed before we move on to the next item i just wanted to make one final point on transition i can see a sort of a classic Euro fudge coming along here with the, with the transition. The big problem that Britain hasn't, or the British side in the talks hasn't faced up to, is the bill. Uh, uh, you know, the huge amount of money that uh, we've committed already to to, to, to to paying into the EU budget. The EU side is faintly terrified that losing, if we do walk away without paying, that they've got to find the money from somewhere, or they have to say to all the recipient countries, you can't have this, that and the other. You have to stop that motorway now. I can see a bit of a fudge coming in which the transition period allows Britain to say, well, look, you know, we're making contributions and we're sort of wrapping things up and pay- making these checks to the European Union for the last couple of years, last four years. And the Europeans say, well, at least we're getting these checks for the next four years. And that the transition period may be the key way to solve the budget problem that quietly, as long as Britain doesn't pick up any new liabilities in the transition period itself, quietly, that that fixes the problem. So you're saying it's the can't pay, will take it away edition of Brexit. It is. Whether you pay them 25 quid and they go away and they don't take your microwave. That sort of thing, yes. Okay. yes. So let's move on to the next news item, which is um, uh, chicken a la chlorine, um, delicious <laughs> and appetising as it is. Um, there's this row we've had in the past few days over whether in order to get Donald Trump's very big and exciting trade deal, which is going to save us after Brexit, we have to accept things like chlorine-washed chicken and hormone-fed beef and stuff like this that is acceptable under American and North American rules but is banned in the EU. We've had several days of faffing around on this. Uh, Liam Fox is still insisting that it's no problem and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed we've got this far into the podcast without having a joke about foxes and chicken. Cocks on things. Amazing. <laughs> Such such restraint. Uh, but this, uh, on Wednesday morning, uh, Michael Gove said that Britain would turn down a deal with America if we had to accept all of this. So um, obviously there isn't cabinet unanimity on that. So first question to, to discuss, you know, um, is is this really a, a, a problem or is it all scare stories? After all, you know, chlorine, the chlorine in the chlorinated chicken isn't the problem. It's whether it, it's used to make the chicken look fresher than it really is and so on. Exactly. It's not about swimming pool poultry. It's about power, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's not taking back control, but it's about giving it away. It's the government negotiating away your bleach-free Sunday roast. Um, you know, EU labelling demands that you would have to list these sorts of ingredients. We just don't know what post-Brexit UK labelling is going to require and, and, and what the US might force us to. Um, and, you know, I just want to know, did leave, 
Did leavers vote in the expectation of cheap chlorinated chicken being imported into the UK? And I, I think we need to know. You know, Liz Hurley, Roger Daltrey, Michael Caine, tell us, is this is this what you really wanted? I mean, I think this is a great example of how the whole identity issue is shifting. So, for example, I don't think we all saw ourselves as, as a nation of chlorine-free Sunday roast lovers, but it turns out that's what we are, you know. And we didn't know that chlorine-free chicken was something that we valued as a nation until the possibility of it being taken away. First of all, I didn't actually know that American chicken is chlorine washed before this all happened. And I secondly didn't think of us as a nation that was so proud of our animal welfare record, you know, because if you listen to a lot of animal welfare campaigners, that's not the impression you get. But suddenly everything's flipped and now suddenly that's one of our core values as a country and, and, and now it's in jeopardy and I thought it was very interesting listening to Liam Fox on Newsnight yesterday being asked repeatedly um, will we end up having to accept chlorinated chicken and the response he kept giving was we will not lower our standards which definitely wasn't a no and you can see him starting to prepare an argument where it isn't a lower standard and therefore it's fine because he wouldn't answer the question directly. But what's the point of leaving the EU if you're not going to change your standards to suit what you supposedly one and I can't imagine that a post-Brexit Britain is going to be able to raise its animal welfare standards. Well, we just want that. I mean, we were definitely promised cheaper food. That was a promise, wasn't it? it the, well, not as conspicuous as 350 million quid a week for the NHS. It wasn't on the side of a bus, a giant chicken, but we were promised cheaper food. Well, um, Miriam Gonzalez Durantes, you know, the lawyer who's married to Nick Clegg, used this quite techie phrase about um, regulatory magnetism. But what it is is that you know, when you are part of a trading block, you have the power to set the standards. And if you leave it, then you are you get kind of magnetically drawn to whoever is setting the standards. So we on our own won't be able to, you know, logic and previous experience dictates set the regulatory agenda. We will kind of be subject to the forces of bigger powers who have. So at the moment, the EU and the US have very different standards and we can choose which one we're going to adhere to. But we're going to have to, to adhere to one of them because on our own, we can't compete with the force and i very much doubt that that britain did veto banning chlorinated chicken in europe you know yeah. it, it, I, I don't know truth be told but it's highly unlikely because what we do know is that during any of kinds of these negotiations britain is usually a winner it, it rarely finds itself uh, on the losing side in eu negotiations so i i don't think britain is a country of chlorine-loving chicken. Well, it's interesting uh, that it's it's become the thing that people have glommed onto. It's become the kind of the, the hook because it's exactly that thing you were just talking about, something that's very British that we that we have discovered, we feel a, feel very uh, attached to. I mean, there are questions about how much chlorine there is in chlorinated chicken. I was reading that you'd have to drink a swimming pool before you ingested the amount of chlorine that's likely to be left in a in a, in a American-style chlorinated chicken breast. So it may be just one of those symbolic things, possibly. And, and surely, you know, part of British identity is is crowing uh, towards Europe over our higher animal welfare standards. You're chlorinating the crows now as well as the chickens. <laughs> but do you remember there was this story about um, Brits uh, doing false insurance claims for getting a dicky belly when they were on holiday? <laughs> you know, it's 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 going to be, you know, flip that and reverse it. It'll be Spanish people coming to hotels in Bournemouth and, and putting in claims for being poisoned by chlorinated chicken. British and of, chicken. And of course, if British farmers have to adopt the same standards, then uh, the EU, which is our main... Um, destination for farm exports will stop buying our stuff which is pretty pretty serious you know um and uh you know the the the, the, the big point is that uh if we open up to all of these 
countries that are going to provide us with all of our exciting trade opportunities in the future. These are all big, 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 big farm exporters. Even India now has become, is becoming a bigger and bigger farm exporter. They have their own standards and they have a absolute... What they want to sell to us is very cheap farm produce. So this is not great news for the British farmer because they will be overwhelmed at a time when the government is talking about how to reduce... Uh, their their subsidies uh, with foreign produce. So that maybe my parting thought before we move on is that the farmers may be the new coal miners. Peter, <laughs> Peter I think what you're telling us is uh, why did the chlorinated chicken cross the road <laughs> Very good. to get to our diminishing economy? Oh. Yes. Very good. So let's move on to our final news topic, which is uh, to do with the airlines that um, Ryanair uh, has announced a couple of things this uh, past few days. First of all, it's putting in a bid for Alitalia, which is a perennially ailing Italian airline. Also, it repeated its warnings that we, you know, we don't have any sign of an air agreement in place for after we leave the EU. Will that mean that you simply cannot fly from Britain uh, to an EU country? And of course, the airlines, uh, Ryanair, we should re- remind ourselves, is an EU airline. It's 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 Irish domiciled. Uh, EasyJet, uh, which is British, has already announced that it's going to set up a new airline in Austria and start to move planes there as part of its preparation because it wants to continue doing business in the EU regardless of what happens uh, with the British market. Um, so obviously all this would mean more air crews based outside the UK, all the backup jobs maybe, if the planes park in Vienna or Paris overnight, the engineers will be there, but the jobs will go. And then we do have this basic problem is, you know, we need, we, we need to have some sort of agreement to allow Britain to British planes, uh, just, just or even planes from anywhere else to fly from Britain to an EU country. And we don't have that yet. And of course the uh, uh, European uh, airline agreement uh, aviation agreement has oversight by let's guess what it's going to be the european court of justice so there's a big problem um so are we all going to go to skegness for holidays in, it, it doesn't really get more emotive than that you mess with our sunday roast now you're messing with our holidays you know i mean th- these are the kind of pressure points that i think are really going to get to people and you know it was it was fun this week uh, watching Theresa may enjoy her freedom of movement to go off on a an alpine walking holiday you know uh, whilst everyone else is is stressing about the idea that they won't be able to just get on a plane and do that kind and of also thing. moaning about the terrible exchange rate with the euro which <laughs> yeah. is driving everybody spare and all of the, uh, the uh, i run the romaniacs uh, twitter a lot of the time and we've had several uh, brexiteers go but look at the dollar we're doing really well about the, against the dollar and the answer is we're not going on holiday to america we're going to spain we're going to greece and people are getting a terrible deal there but back back to the airplanes i mean yeah yeah indeed so i was looking at uh, what my um consulting firm about this looking at what the options are so obviously we could join the um eu open uh, skies mm-hmm. um, agreement they say the problem there is that the ecj overlooks that and with this would be a problem uh we could try to do what uh, the swiss did which is to have like a, 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 a an agreement with the EU as a whole. And the trouble with that is the Swiss had to agree to that as part of a big deal that included, guess what, freedom of movement. Um, uh, we could, Or we could try going around every single one of the 27 other EU countries uh, and try to ne- negotiate a bilateral deal with each one of them for aviation to go back to basically where we were in the 60s when international travel took over. But of course, they might get stopped from doing that by the European Commission because it generally doesn't allow um, European Union members to do negotiations on an individ- international negotiations of that sort with uh, with uh, individual countries. But the aviation was so much more glamorous in the 60s. You can smoke <laughs> on the planes, you've got silver service dinner. Brexit, people are going to love that. Go back to the past. And it was really exciting. 
expensive. Yes. I, I... Uh, and and safety records weren't quite what they were either. Yes. And uh, I read yesterday in The Independent that the um, UK leaving the Open Skies Agreement means that it also leaves the Euro Aviation Safety Agency and that the UK doesn't have its own capacity to do things like certify maintenance facilities. So, yep, that's right. The UK won't be able to certify the people that fix planes. So, frankly, uh, it might be safer to go to Skegness. I think we, I think we should, uh, you know, we try what we try to do in the podcast is not pretend that every bit of negative news proves that Brexit was wrong, and we try to acknowledge positive stuff. So we should point out that uh, one of the big things trumpeted by the Brexiteers this week is BMW saying that the new electric mini car will be built in Britain with a motor made in Germany, but never mind. <laughs> um, and Europe, and uh, there was a CBI survey saying that manufacturing in activity has been growing at the fastest pace since '95. What's behind? Both of these things, it seems to be, to some extent, is the fact that the pound has gone down, and that is a you know that does give you a temporary boost to uh, to, to your competitiveness. The question is then whether you're under any pressure to become more productive, and productivity is always said to be a big problem for British industry. So it's a sort of quick fix. It's like a sugar rush, it seems to me. So um, I'm not totally uh, convinced by this positive. Brexit news, but we should acknowledge it. And, you know, the Brexiteers do say that it's not all bad news on the economic front. I thought it was so interesting to hear the discussion about infrastructure and HS2 and um, Northern Powerhouse or the lack thereof, you know, under the current government plans this week, because that is the real issue, isn't it? So many people who voted Brexit were voting for return on manufacturing, more investment in their region. And I think the cracks are starting to show that there is no substitute for a proper plan and real money invested in that kind of thing. And, you know, HS2 is a great example of how really important links in Northern England are just being completely ignored, you know. And 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 I don't think that we can have any sustainable increase in manufacturing without that. And I think it's going to become increasingly clear that Brexit is no solution. In fact, if anything, it kind of jeopardises the likely sources of income that's going to make that more possible. And I think that is going to make people um, feel differently when it starts to emerge, because there is still that sense that just believe in Brexit and it will come. Yeah, but, you know, an electric mini running on British electricity with a big union jack on the roof. I mean, come on, there's your problem solved, isn't it? But we won't be able to afford to buy one. That's, 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 that's going to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> blow the bloody doors off. Yes, blow the bloody doors off the European Union. And now there's no scrappage money for our diesel cars, you know. It's just going to be that much tougher to buy a nice new shiny electric mini. But there it is. But I think you're completely right. What what you've talked about is this sort of lack of infrastructure investment, this lack of capital spending. If you go back to 1997 and look at Ipsos Mori polling ahead of the 97 general election, they show that immigration didn't feature in the sort of top five worries and concerns of voters. I mean, within about 95 percent of the people they polled, so you know, fewer than five percent putting immigration as a top concern. Fast forward 20 years when you have had very little in the way of infrastructure in those deindustrialized areas. You haven't had <clears throat> any reskilling of uh, populations, any kind of uh, stuff for them there. And certainly a chronic lack of house building over two decades. And what have you got? Suddenly, lots of people saying that immigration is hurting them and hurting their communities and you get a Brexit vote in a referendum. That is totally my view on the immigration debate. And it's, you know, there are so many things that it's perfectly reasonable to expect a government to do through sensible policy, build houses, create enough school places, invest in infrastructure. And, you know, and it's, this is not just the Conservative or Coalition government. The, you know, Labour also, we've had successive governments failing to enact pro- proactive policy. And it's just so easy to just find the visible other in the country and point the finger at them instead of addressing these failings. 
So that was the news. And as you've heard, we are enormously pleased to have the writer, commentator and former barrister Afua Hirsch as our special guest today. Afua, your book, Brit-ish, Why We Need to Talk About Race, comes out in January. There's a, a widely held belief that Brexit picked a scab covering a whole hidden mess of attitudes about race in the UK. What did you find in your research for the book? Oh, yeah, there's so much to say about it. And I think that um, one of the things I'm interested in is different relationships with Britishness in dif- the different nations of the UK. So, you know, we all know from the referendum result that it was mainly English and Welsh voters who voted Brexit. And that chimes in a really interesting way with the research I did around senses of identity in different nations. So looking at this from a kind of minority perspective, for example, I I found that people in Scotland from ethnic minority backgrounds are much quicker to say that they're Scottish than people in England who would, who you never hear someone say, I'm black English. They would always say I'm black British. And, you know, maybe we were talking about the Union Jack. I mean, the Union Jack's slightly been detoxified from years of kind of nationalism connotations, thanks to New Labour and Cool Britannia and Britpop. But the, the St George's flag absolutely hasn't and still has the those kind of connotations and I think for me there's something to be said about English identities being particularly vulnerable to the loss of empire to the kind of confusion about England's place in the world in a way that other identities haven't and I think it's no coincidence that that's the same demographic who are voting for Brexit and I think it is tied to that sense of you know a sense of Britain's decline on the world stage wanting to be great again we've never really unpicked the history of empire what the demise of empire means what its legacy really is and so instead of addressing these quite difficult and sensitive questions we've just kind of papered over it and said you know forget the EU we used to be global for which read we used to have an empire Um, and I found a lot of the rhetoric around post-Brexit trade a kind of empire 2.0 you know the idea that oh we can just revert to the commonwealth you know they're our bargain bucket you know they always have been and um, I find that really disturbing because it's really tapping into those kind of historical issues that I think we have to address because every single person in this country has some kind of connection to the empire, whether in their own heritage or their own family background of working or, um, you know, people who've come here. And we've just never really fully talked about what it means and what it means for our sense of what Britain is. You're right. We have one country, but essentially three political cultures, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, And, 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 you know, there were three different elections there. Um, It's probably commonplace to say that Remain thought the Brexit argument was all about facts and figures and reason and economics, but Leave really knew it was about identity and they tapped into it and they won. Do you recognise that? And sort of a supplementary question, really. Has our Brexit vote changed British identity at all? So on the second point, yes, there is some data about that. For example, something I personally found quite disturbing was that since the Brexit vote there's been a massive reduction in the number of British people from minority backgrounds who feel British so um, a significantly higher percentage say they now so like me I was you know I wasn't born here as you said but I grew up in Britain I've never had another uh, nationality Um, but my mother came from Ghana in the 60s and people like me are now more likely to say they feel say Ghanaian than British even though they may have been born here and lived all their lives here so I think there's definitely been a growing sense that Britishness isn't for you if you're not white. And that's the first thing. So I think that I find that really disturbing. There was another poll recently um, about the percentage of people in Britain who felt that people from visible minorities were damaging Britishness. And um, around 50 percent of British people said that they did. So that, again, 
was I found disturbing. And I think there's lots of little indications that the Brexit vote has given a new sense of energy to people who want to redefine Britishness as something white, something connected to a past that we've not dealt with properly. Um, and that it's an exclusive thing that kind of, you know, keeps people out. And of course, there are all the anecdotal stories about people um, being targeted by racism and xenophobia since the Brexit vote. So um, I think that's really worrying. And it's not to fall into the trap of saying that Brexit was a racist thing or necessarily an anti-immigration thing. But at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that it is having these kind of emotional consequences. And that's really damaging, I think, for everyone. And th and that's, you know, the problem with moving the argument on. You've got half of society saying, you know, it, where it matters most, the leavers are sick of hearing about race and racism. And they're very keen to sort of say, we're not racist, we're not racists. So how do, how do Romaniacs, how do pro-EU people get the argument across to leave voters without the conversation collapsing into, you're a racist, no, I'm not. I would like to see us kind of drill down in more detail into what we think Britain is, because you know, trying to find a silver lining here, if, and I've heard Brexit described this way, as a kind of new start, a chance to really kind of be proactive, take our modern nation, have a future vision, redefine what we stand for and what we mean and who we are. And all that, if you just take it on its surface, is great because it's something that we've never done, you know, as a modern nation, um, you know, since the Second World War, since the geopolitical landscape changed so dramatically with the end of the empire. And we need to do that. There are so many unanswered questions. There's so much kind of confusion about what we are and what we stand for. And I would love to see us do that. Unfortunately, that's not happening. And instead, we're kind of slipping into this defensive mode. Um, Remain is saying that Brexit is racist. Brexiteers saying that it's not. People, meanwhile, caught up in it, just feeling um, incredibly persecuted and alienated from the direction Britain's going in. So there is an opportunity to actually have these maybe difficult, but I think non-negotiable conversations that have to be had. You know, and maybe this is, you know, we didn't have a civil rights movement in the way America did. And I think that's a big reason we're much less comfortable talking about race and identity in this country. You know, maybe this is our moment to actually kind of be forced into confronting these things. So I, it would be great if we do that. There's nothing to indicate so far so, that we're going to in a sensible and grown up way. But, but not a civil war. <laughs> Sorry, not a civil war. Um, no, not advocating a civil war. I'm not even saying that we're going to have a civil rights movement in the same way in America did, but I think we do need to have that level of kind of existential debate about who we are as a country. Amongst all of the amazing things you've done, you were also West Africa correspondent for The Guardian and you lived in Ghana for a few years. Um, I don't know, you know if you're still in touch with people there, uh, former colleagues, relatives and things, but what does Africa think of Brexit? Well, I find that a fascinating question. So just one thing to say, kind of as an anecdote, um, when I was in Ghana, that it, I think it, when I moved to Ghana in 2014, it was the fastest growing economy in the world, just as Britain was still suffering the effects of the credit crunch. And there was this huge um, kind of movement of British Ghanaians, people who are second, third generation, who were moving to Ghana, saying, that, you know, there's racism in the UK, there's glass ceilings, the economy's tanking, but in Ghana, there's unlimited opportunity. And I found that since Brexit, the Ghanaian government has really cottoned onto that and is now actively recruiting British people who have Ghanaian heritage to say, you know what, you know, all the things they're saying there, don't worry about it, come here and you can run things, you know, and that's proving really popular. They just had this huge conference in Accra um, um, about returning home. And so, you know, that's one example, I think, of how people are slightly voting with their feet um, on that issue. 
I'm really disappointed in the broader African response. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of coded language, as I was saying, about about the kind of empire and about seeing the Commonwealth as a kind of fair game for Britain to just get deals and continue to kind of extract in favourable terms. And I would have liked to see African leaders stand up to that and say, we aren't your empire anymore. You can come and deal with us on equal terms. Don't just assume we're here to serve you in the way that I've heard Liam Fox speak, for example. And so far, we've just seen them be like, you want to do deal with us? Yay. You know, and that I think is really disappointing. It's a similar story with Donald Trump, by the way, that, you know, no matter how uh, offensive the things he says are, they're still kind of queuing up to do deals with him. So, you know, I would really like to see a more um, ideological stance from African nations about the way they do deals with Britain. And, you know, it's no coincidence that's the point of the Commonwealth is to reinforce that message that Britain still sits at the head. Is there a bit of schadenfreude in it? Like, ah, the British think they're so great and look what they've done, the fools. Yeah, there is. <laughs> there definitely is. There's a little bit of smugness. And yeah. and um, and also, you know, I mean, this never gets said, but I think it's so interesting. Britain is actively encouraging regional integration in other parts of the world. So to take West Africa, where I was a foreign correspondent, you know, there's ECOWAS, which is their regional body. And Britain's been encouraging monetary union, greater trade, cooperation, free movement. Yeah, what? Exactly. This is disgraceful. And, you know, the reasons are obvious because everyone acknowledges that African uh, economies can't grow without regional integration so I find it quite fascinating um, you know from an African perspective to look at the double standard I think a lot of Africans have noticed that as well and are kind of enjoying watching uh, you know British policy kind of tie itself into various are you, knots are you saying we're, we're saying do as we say don't do as we do isn't that I don't believe isn't it isn't that unprecedented <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's have a brief commercial break. You can't think about politics all day, every day. Even the most dedicated mind needs a little time off to recharge. In which case, may we recommend our sister podcast, Big Mouth, the smart pop culture talk show. Every week, Big Mouth brings some of Britain's best music, film and TV journalists together to talk about what's coming out and what matters. And there are a few familiar voices from Romaniacs on the show now and again too. This week, Big Mouth looks at the new series of Game of Thrones with special guests Jamie East of Thronecast and Virgin Radio and Anna Fielding of Stylist Magazine. It's perfect holiday listening if you're lying on that beach wondering why a beer that cost two euros last year now cost eight plus tip. You can find Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. It's just soothing calm for the Brexit-battered brain. Now to our next topic. His name is Vince and he is funky, apparently. Uh, <laughs> Naomi, you're a big fan of Vince Cable. I guess you're quite pleased that he got elected unopposed to the Liberal Democrat leadership. So um, how is his brand of politics going to work and how is it, how is it going to sort of, you hope, affect the Brexit debate? You say that um, I'm a fan. Cringingly, I think about 10 years ago, I actually may have started a Facebook group called I Heart Vince Cable. <laughs> <laughs> I have subsequently deleted it, uh, not just before this show. But, uh, what can I say about Vince? Um, I've worked with him. Uh, he's on the social liberal wing of the Liberal Democrat Party like me. Um, he's a phenomenal ballroom dancer. What? You may remember oh, yeah. he did a, uh, a a little celebrity spin on uh, uh, Strictly uh, a few years ago with Alicia Dixon. Um, in fact, I think he's something like the national uh, foxtrot and waltz champion or something. And when I sort of lauded him for this, he said to me, 
there's not so much competition in the over 65 category <laughs> anyway. So he's a very self-deprecating person. Um, he's probably one of the least vainglorious politicians in Parliament at the moment, um, I would say. No, that's not to say he isn't vainglorious, but just that he's one of the least. Um, and uh, the Lib Dems are hugely tainted by coalition. Um, and a big uh, Tim Farron mistake, I think, was to not show enough contrition uh, for coalition uh, during his time as leader. And I think that Vince Cable probably will. Um, he's the sort of person that tends to take advice well um, and listens to people who disagree with him. So when he was Secretary of State for, for Business, he appointed special advisers that he debated you know, against before the the 2010 general election, um, unlike uh, so many other politicians who sort of tend to surround themselves by yes people. And obviously Tim Breck, uh, Tim uh, Farron got caught up with various other problems. So nice of him to decide eventually that my partner and I are not sinners. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, he, he, he got caught up in all of that and couldn't make the the, the, the sort of the, the, the pitch to us Romaniacs that you know we're the only one of the three mainstream parties that is seriously against Brexit. Come and join us. It didn't work for Tim Farron for various reasons. How is Vince Cable going to do it? Do you think? Well, and how is he going to handle it? How is he going to? propose it, it, it to him. I think so the, the the big problem the Liberal Democrats have is that no one trusts them. So people either sort of have sort of forgotten about them and disregarded them or they really dislike them for betrayal. Um, and I think of all of the coalition ministers, Vince probably had the best coalition from that perspective, if you like. Um, he never uh, looked like he was enjoying it. Um, he was a thorn in the side of number 10 and the Treasury throughout coalition. Um, he criticised Osborne repeatedly over things like lack of capital spending and lack of progress on national house building. He was always having his uh, knuckles wrapped by number 10. Um, and he always maintained dialogue with Labour uh, colleagues throughout the coalition. So... Um, you know, let's face it, he's probably the best Labour Chancellor that they never had. Um, he talks about doing a Macron. So I think, you know, that's where he's drawing a lot of his inspiration from. Um, and he hasn't ruled out a realignment of British politics or the creation of, of some kind of new party uh, and is a sort of staunch defender of progressive alliance type um, electoral tactics. So I think that will that will be his approach. It will be to consensus build around this opportunity that we've got where for the first time, certainly in my life, British politics isn't split on left, right. It's split on liberal versus illiberal. There is a, a strange uh, kind of echoing of Corbyn there in that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we would never have touched a politician who wasn't young and shiny and presentable on the media. Now we're like these crusty old guys. And even our prime minister is a, is a crusty, oldish person. These are not shiny, glamorous characters. Is there an opportunity for, for uh, Vince to kind of brand himself as like the centrist Corbyn, the radical centre, oh, the I'd invincible? Oh, I'd much prefer he did a Bernie Sanders. I yeah. don't really think the centrism thing works particularly well. I think the radical bit does, uh, and certainly being unavowedly pro pro remain and, and and trying to put a stop to brexit as for being 74 i think in an aging society we have to accept um and get used to seeing older people contributing later in life to civic life um you know and especially if corbyn and david davis get their way and send all the lovely young migrants home uh that's all we're left with anyway so um yeah i mean i, I you know he's got twinkle toes he's got a sparkle in his eye uh and and very high energy levels uh, and i think you know if you can get young people behind corbyn there's absolutely nothing to stop young people getting behind Vince if he is the one that will, you know, future-proof their EU citizenship in the way Corbyn just doesn't want to. I'm not sure I agree with some of, some of that stuff because, first of all, yes, we can get more young voters coming out and voting, but this is an ageing country. It's old crusties like me. 
um, who are you know a large and growing part of the the population. My worry about uh, Vince Cable, in fact, is that he will make what I see as a mistake, which you possibly would see as a good thing, which is that he'll be trying to outflank Labour on the left rather than. On the, in the centre, so he, you know, he did an interview just after uh, the, the formalising of his leadership, talking about wealth taxes and so on. That isn't going to attract people like me, who are at the far liberal end of the Conservative Party in, in voting intentions, um, who who could be drawn away, who don't like. Um, an awful lot of things like doing deals with the DUP who don't like Brexit. Um, you know, to, to, to really get more than a dozen MPs and be an effective protest group, you have to draw from the two main parties, it seems to me. And th- therefore, to me, by definition, that means in the centre. And I would I would say that, yes, you are wrong. Uh, when we look at British electoral studies uh, and um, Professor David Howarth, who's the former MP for, for the Lib Dems in Cambridge before, before Julian Huppert, um, he's done a, a lot of work on this, analysing where you know British attitudes are on these sorts of things and 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 the type of voter you describe um, actually probably only makes up around eight percent of the electorates but when you look at people who care about equality of opportunity and equality of outcome who have a very internationalist perspective who are very in favor of redistributive wealth taxes then actually you're you're back up into the 20 23 percent where the Liberal Democrats sort of had their core vote until they uh, uh, lost it all under Clegg. Just before we move on, is there, I mean, I think a lot of listeners would love there to be an unequivocal anti-Brexit party that they can vote for. Is there a future for the Lib Dems as a single issue, stop Brexit, second referendum party, put everything else to one side? I would hope so. I think there should be. I think the mistake they made uh, in the general election just gone was that they were damp squib on it. You know, they, 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 they were worried about being seen as single issue. So they dialed down on the Europe stuff. They they allowed Corbyn and May to make the entire election about domestic issues um, and, and didn't keep Europe enough on the agenda. Um, you know, of course, any major party is going to have to have other policies and, and other commitments within their manifesto. But I think right now, if you've only got a dozen MPs, you absolutely have to say we are the way to get an exit from Brexit. Afwa, what would make you consider voting for the Lib Dems what could Vince Cable do to attract your attention at least I think the key word for me that Natalie used was trust I think that actually um, it's got a complex picture about where we are on the centre or the left you know and I, I found that the the kind of comparisons with Macron really interesting but I think that for me you know what we've learned from Blair and Cameron is that people are done with the kind of polished centrist politician and actually want somebody who is on the right side and has been consistently with integrity. That's the appeal of Corbyn, you know, for all his flaws. He's always been on the right side and has done so with complete personal integrity. And I think Vince Cable is actually a rare example of somebody who's also got a kind of track record of being sensible in leadership, but also has always been on the right side. And I think it's that trust that actually people are looking for. And that's, to me, a big part of why Theresa May kind of bombed the election, because she just forgot about all of that human stuff, you know, and I think Vince Cable is kind of an anathema to that and I think that makes them really compelling but yes you know in order to kind of seal the deal the Lib Dems need a clear brand and you know it was such an open goal in the election it should have been such an open goal for the for the pro-Remainers um, and so 
I worry about it being a single issue party, but I think that they absolutely need to kind of nail that remain message with a kind of consistent integrity on everything else. Okay, so let's finish this week with our final topic, which is a quick look at Labour and their latest contortions on Brexit. Um, They certainly are not in any prospect of becoming a single-issue anti-Brexit party at the moment. Andrew? Well, yes. I mean, the big news in the week from last weekend's round of political interviews was Jeremy Corbyn's remarkable interview on the the Andrew Marr show, in which he asserted that membership of the single market is dependent on membership of the EU. A huge number of people, from Krishnan Gurumurthy to friend of Romaniacs Mike Goldsworthy from Scientists for EU, piled on on social media to point out that this is is just not true. Lots of countries are part of the single market and not members of the EU. Norway and Iceland are in the EEA. Switzerland isn't in the EU or the EEA, and yet it's part of that single market with freedom of movement and all the good stuff. Most provocatively, Corbyn also said that when we leave the EU, there would still be European workers in Britain and vice versa, but that what there wouldn't be is wholesale importation of underpaid foreign workers from Central Europe in order to destroy conditions, particularly in the construction industry. Now, you couldn't get more UKP than that. If you tried, it is literally foreigners coming over here taking our jobs, even though there is ample evidence that EU migrants were always of net benefit to the UK. And uh, one wag disinterred Labour's infamous controls on immigration mug from the 2015 election and Diane Abbott's tweet calling it shameful and an embarrassment. So what part of the wholesale importation of underpaid workers from Central Europe wouldn't fit on a mug? I think it might look a bit weird on your rack. So we're in this bizarre situation of a Labour leader who did better than expected in the general election, in part because people thought that voting for him was voting for Remain, or at least a plausible Remain vote. He's now making arguments that you'd hear from Nigel Farage. Um, give him his due. He did say that he'd guarantee EU migrants a right to stay in the UK, which is more than plenty of other people do. And yet the strange thing is, rather than reject this, the Corbynista wing of the party doubled down and the response was, well, if Jeremy says it, then it must be OK. So we basically have two hard Brexit parties. What do we think about this? I mean, clearly, if Corbyn wasn't defending the Conservatives' hard Brexit, then it would be very, very vulnerable to Tory and Labour rebellion. So I, that's the point. I can't understand what, you know, so you've got... Um, Corbyn doing very well, a lot better than expected. He still didn't win the election, remember. Uh, he did it better than expected by getting out the youth vote and getting young people who are predominantly anti-Brexit. And yet he's there he is on another interview watched by older people because it's on conventional media, sounding like Nigel Farage on a, ba- on a bad day. I don't, I don't see, maybe the rest of the panel can enlighten me, how is Labour going to continue to do this, to be both um, the party for young, uh, you know, sort of, outwardly looking global minded people and the pro-Brexit party how can they do it well for me the genius of the Labour manifesto was that by being so radical on kind of you know the public sector and wealth redistribution they just managed to completely distract attention away from their stance on Brexit which you know Theresa May had intended to make that a single issue for the election and uh, for good reason because it's just such a mess I mean I you know I I always I, I the number one person I'm glad I'm not at the moment is Keir Starmer because you know all of these senior people in Labour who have a very clear stance on wanting to basically stay in the single market and retain free movement. I don't know how they are going to reconcile what's coming out of Jeremy Corbyn's mouth Yeah, they're mouth being at the totally moment. boxed off in public, aren't they? They're being hemmed in by these, these sort of straight off the top of their head pronouncements on political interview programmes. But it is there is only so long this can go on without beginning to alienate mm. that core pro-Remain vote that mm. voted for Corbyn because it's not what people who voted for him want to hear. I completely agree. I think the Corbyn supporters who are also hardened Remainers are, are acting like gamblers. You know, they're taking a gamble. They're, there's lots of, oh, he didn't mean that when he says something very pro-hard Brexit. But the thing about gamblers is that they have to know their limits. 
And I don't <laughs> see where Owen Jones's limit is. Um, and, you know, you know, is it when Corbyn's going to whip MPs to back bits of the Great Repeal Bill? Um, you know, it's just not clear to me. Uh, somebody did something quite funny on Twitter saying that if I was Jeremy Corbyn, I'd just come out with the most absurd things possible to see just how far I can push yeah. Owen to, to defend it. Um, and, you know, it's it's not the DUP propping up the Tory government at the moment. Frankly, it's Labour. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned Starmer and he came out with quite a detailed list of, of requirements that he wants from the quote, great, unquote, quote, uh, repeal bill, including a great many checks and balances, holding back on these Henry V powers and all the rest of it. And uh, it doesn't seem to have any... It's, it's, it's not connected with what the leadership is saying at all. I wonder whether Labour has got itself into a position whereby the Corbynistas, it's almost a Trump position, the Corbynistas believe in Jeremy Corbyn so much that they'll accept anything he says and they won't even register that uh, these things are inconsistent with the rest of the party or even inconsistent with what they've said in the past because they're so committed to Jeremy. I mean, a big part of the picture is back to what you were saying about Vince Cable, the absence of alternatives. And that is the problem, you know. And I think that's why, um, you know, the bet continues mm. because so where, where else mm. are you going to put mm. your money? Mm. It's like Lexit v Brexit. If we put them against each other and sort of look at their visions of the, the world, in the Owen Jones world, the chicken is free range, it's unchlorinated, has its own little house. And in any case, no one eats it because we're all doing what Jeremy does and we're all vegetarian. Uh, uh, and in the Brexiteer version, the chicken is kind of radioactive, but also very cheap. You know, what a choice for us all. What a time to be alive. It's a Schrodinger's Brexit chicken. <laughs> existing in both states at the same time. Well, I think your analogy of gambling is very good and the, and, and the message to Owen and indeed to a lot of the Corbynistas is when the fun stops, stop. And yeah. the fun is about to stop. And, you know, it's... it's uh, the contortions that we saw at the weekend, God knows what we're going to have to see in future to keep this whole thing strapped together. So, time is an illusion, European working time doubly so, and we're coming to the end of the show. So we've just got time to let you know about some of the very encouraging reactions that we've had for the podcast so far. Thumbs UK on Twitter says, really enjoying the at Romaniacs cast podcast. Informative and witty. I just wish it didn't exist. We know what he means, but <laughs> yeah. we, we know that's, yes, exactly, that's okay. Our old friends Leeds for Europe also on Twitter say, love the podcast, but could you laugh more quietly? And could you get that Owen Jones on your podcast and laugh loudly at him? Keep up the good work. Well, Owen, uh, we won't laugh at you and we would love to have you on the show. Uh, Simon Watkins says, another fine show, funny and informative, hoping for the best, but fearing. And then there's a large picture of a German sausage. Yes, you guessed it. The worst. Mm. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, meanwhile, on iTunes, Floozy5 says uh, Remaniacs is a place to go when you want discussion on Brexit that is both thorough and makes you laugh and over on Audio Boom user 503172 he's my favourite or she's my favourite says it's a voice of sanity in a world going to hell in a handcart so everything is all magnifique and wunderbar and that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our special guest, Afwa Hirsch. It's great to have a TV star in the studio. <laughs> Your book, Brit-ish, that's Brit and then brackets-ish, Why We Need to Talk About Race, is already on pre-order on Amazon, I believe. Is that right? It is terrifyingly, even though I only finished actually writing it last week. So there you go. Modern technology, eh? And what's your next celebrity appearance? Um, I won't be on the pledge again until September. We've just broken up for the summer. It's all very uh, quaint and school-like. So uh, I'm doing lots of other projects over the summer so keep an eye out 
Great. And thanks to Naomi for co-hosting the show. How did it go for you? Yeah, wonderful. How was it for you, <laughs> as they say? And also to Andrew, who can now go back and hide behind the mixing desk. I'll do that, yes. Remember, you can hear more Romaniacs and find all of our social media connections at our website, romaniacs.com. That's remain and then eax.com. Uh, there's a link. There's links on that to our archive, listen again buttons, links to us on our audio, boom, iTunes, and now Spotify as well. We'll be back next week to undermine democracy and stifle the voice of the people as best we can. Until then, we're going to finish with a reason to be cheerful, and it's Naomi's turn. What do you got? Oh, I mean, I'm rarely going to be cheerful about anything Brexit, am I? But um, I think the European project is now more secure than ever before, even if it's not going to have the UK in it, um, with with several polls showing a sharp increase in favourability for the EU amongst uh, EU citizens in uh, non-UK countries across the EU27. Um, And one that I took from at Andy Bodel on Twitter, and this is one for Eurovision fans, he says, now at last, with all those other stupid countries, countries removed the uk can win eurovision every (laughs) year with 12 points not dues (laughs) thank you very much so until next week desperately trying to remember a bit of my o-level french grade b from the late 1970s ne laissez pas les bâtards nous détruire romaniacs was presented by peter collins and naomi smith with andrew harrison the producers were elliot prince and matt hall the senior producer is Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.